Well, if you will, now open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 15. Psalm 15, the text will be in this morning. We have, of course, just finished this little section of Psalms in Psalm 10 to 14, dealing largely with the depravity of man. The fact that the Lord, as He looks down from heaven, sees only evil continually. That there is none who does good. He sees within the heart of the natural fallen man and He sees the atheism that abides within Him. That He tells Himself, He speaks to Himself that there is no God in order to justify, as Psalm 14 said, the abominable deeds that He does. So there's a bleak picture that is painted about the nature of man, which then leads us to Psalm 15 and Psalm 16, which really need to be understood as as, um, two psalms taken together. our, Our focus this morning will be on Psalm 15, where the question is raised. After David has just described all of this depravity of the human heart. Who can come into God's presence? So that's the question that we'll focus our time on this morning as we look particularly at the portrait that David paints of the man who can come into the presence of God. So Psalm 15 again is our text. This is, of course, a psalm of David. We will begin by reading together verses 1 to 5. David writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, as we've been making our way through the Psalms, we are led to this inevitable and necessary question. As we see in the prior Psalms, our natural state the state of man apart from Christ, apart from regeneration and conversion, as a man who is depraved in all of his ways, in all of his nature, we wonder who then can be saved? Who can come into your presence? And here your inspired prophet David begins to describe for us the answer to that question. He is a blameless man. He is a perfect man. He is a man of truth who upholds your law and who does it. The only man who can be in your presence is one who is without spot and blemish. One who is righteous in all of His ways. And so, Father, I pray that as we heed the words of this psalm, as we seek to understand what You are teaching us through it, that You would help us to see ultimately our Savior, Christ, who Himself, by His righteousness, will bring us into Your presence. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I think most people have probably heard of Mount Everest before, because it is the tallest mountain on earth, having a peak of 29,029 feet above sea level. Most people have heard of this mountain. Not many, however, have heard of the second largest mountain on earth, K2, which has a peak of 28,251 feet, but which, in comparison to Everest, is far, far more deadly. Out of all the climbers that have tried to reach and who have reached the top of Everest, only 1% of those climbers have died. Perhaps you've heard the stories before. They make movies about the people who have tragically perished as they sought to ascend Mount Everest. But in all of the total number of climbers who have made that climb, only 1% have perished. Compare that to the second largest mountain on earth, K2. Out of all the climbers that have tried to reach the top of that mountain, 25% have perished. The climate on K2 is notoriously treacherous. Wind and snowstorms can pop out without a moment's notice. The slopes on that mountain are far more steep and therefore they require a lot more technical training and climbing. There are far more frequent avalanches. And even before the ascent can even begin, even before you get to the point where you're really climbing, you have to make a, a treacherous hike over glaciers that are also notoriously known for just collapsing and killing people who are walking on them. Needless to say, it is not a mountain that just anyone can climb. Even if you could get access to the mountain, which itself is very difficult because it's located in Pakistan and just getting there and through that government is a challenge in itself. But even if you could get there, you can't, just as any person, just decide you're going to hike up to the top of K2. It's not like going to some mountain in Tennessee or going to the Rockies and hiking up to one of the mountains you see and it was just a, a good, pleasant walk. Maybe gave you a little strain, but you made it to the top. Now you have to have training. There are requirements that you need to have for your own safety. You need to know how to acclimate to all of the changing altitudes and the lack of oxygen. You need to know how to survive on minimal food, how to set up a camp in sub-zero temperatures, how to keep your body warm, how to recognize altitude sickness and when you start to hallucinate. And you need to recognize all of these things because once you cross the threshold of 8,000 feet, you enter into the section of the mountain known as the death zone, which is where your body slowly begins to die. You're alive, but it is minute after minute starting to shut down. And you need to recognize how much your own body can handle. You need to have climbed many other mountains for the sake of experience. And in fact, it is, I think, virtually always the case that everyone who has ever ascended K2 has first gone to the top of Mount Everest. And then they go to K2 for an even greater challenge. The point is that if you try to climb to the top of the mountain and you are not properly trained and you're not properly equipped, if you don't meet all of the necessary requirements to ascend to the top of the mountain, you will die. It is a guarantee. It is already Almost a guarantee, even if you are equipped. But if you are not equipped, you will perish. 
And in a very real sense, it is the same for anyone who would ever attempt to come into the presence of God. God is a holy God, we are told. He has revealed Himself as a holy God. And His holiness is described in other parts of Scripture as a consuming fire. You don't just waltz into His presence especially not so as a sinner. God is not a God who is to be identified with nature, nor is He just some jolly Santa Claus figure that is seated in the heavens just watching things spin without any intervention at all. He is the Creator of all creation. He is the One who upholds all creation by the very Word of His mouth. He is most pure in Himself. He is described as radiant light in whom there is no darkness at all. And therefore, if man in his fallen natural state within Adam, in his darkness, if man were to hypothetically try to come into God's presence on his own merits and in his own nature, he would be consumed in a moment. He would be darkness entering into the presence of light and the light would, would cause him to vanish immediately. He would be like Nadab and Abihu that we read about in the Old Testament when God consumed them in a moment by fire because they did not sanctify Him and offered to Him unauthorized fire. They came into His presence or they attempted to come into His presence disregarding the means by which they were able to come and they were consumed in a moment. The point is that it is not a light matter to approach the living God. It can be very dangerous. It can be deadly even. It can make ascending the most deadly mountain on earth appear to be nothing more than child's play. And so in this particular psalm, David is wondering. He's reflecting on who can approach God. Who can come into His presence? Who is the one who can ascend to the mountain of the Lord? This psalm, as I mentioned earlier, of course, comes on the heels of Psalms 10 to 14, which have especially been meditating on the sinfulness of man and the universality of his corruption. Man in himself, we saw, is not a God seeker, but a God hater. He is corrupt, he does evil. He says in his heart, there is no God at all. And so in light of the stated nature of man, David is contemplating this question. Who can come? As I look around and I see all of humanity and I see what God sees about man, who can come? Who is the one who can be in God's presence. Who is the righteous man? Who, as he says, is the one who can sojourn in the tent of the Lord and dwell on His holy hill? The place of God's presence. The place where His tabernacle and temple is to be found. And as the psalm unfolds in verses 2 and following, David then goes on to answer this question. But of course, we know from going through the Psalms that uh, David is a poet. Right? He, he's not just going to come right out and give us some propositional statement. 
he likes to paint a picture. And that's what he does here. He is a poet who is painting a portrait of the man who can come into the presence of this God. And this morning, I want us to consider some of the features or some of the characteristics of this man. What is this man like who can come into the presence of God? And the first thing that we see in the psalm is that this man is a man of truth. He is a man of truth. This is stated for us both positively and negatively in verses 2 and 3. Positively, the man who can dwell in the presence of God walks blamelessly and does what is right. These are both phrases that are often associated with keeping the law. As in Psalm 119, verse 1, where we read there, Blessed is the man whose way is blameless and who walks in the Torah of the Lord. It's a parallel statement. To be a man who is blameless is to be a man who walks in the Torah or the law of the Lord. He knows what is righteous because he has for himself the the revelation of God's righteousness in His own Word, and the righteous man submits himself to it. He is trustworthy. And he is trustworthy because he obeys the God who Himself is trustworthy. But I want you to notice also that verse 2 says that He speaks truth in His heart. He speaks truth in His heart. This is, of course, the very opposite of what we saw in Psalms 10 and 14 about the unrighteous man, about fallen man who speaks lies in his heart. He says to himself, there is no God. Internally, he is corrupt. It is in the natural man's heart to be full of lies. As John Calvin once remarked as well about the human heart, it is a perpetual factory of idols. He is constantly creating and recreating new lies to worship and to submit himself to. And sinful man does this all the time. He will believe in anything as long as it's not the truth. He will believe in any lie that you present to him as long as it is not about the truth of God. He will believe, as many people do, that aliens created humanity, created the world, created the habitable many planets, we are told. He will believe in multiverses. He will believe in the divinity of nature, that land itself is infused with the divine and is sacred. He will believe that we're all living in a simulated computer program. That's some of the influence of popular movies. He will believe that we don't actually exist. That this is just all within our heads. He will believe that men can get pregnant or that the earth is flat. He will tell himself anything except what is true. That is the nature of the human heart. Whatever idol he can cling on to that is the lie and is not of God, he will embrace. But the man who can come into the presence of God is a man of truth. This man rejects lies. This man speaks truth in his heart. He meditates on the Word of God. He is the Psalm 1 blessed man who meditates on the law of the Lord 
day and night. That's what he tells himself. He delights in the Word of God. He speaks to his soul, commanding his soul, bless the Lord, O my soul. And he rejoices in the Lord always. There is no change with him. He has a singular focus, and that is to be a man of truth who embraces the truths of God. We are told here that his very inner man is truth. And therefore, what proceeds from him will be truth. Which leads to the same idea being stated negatively for us in verse 3. The righteous man, we are told, does not slander with his tongue. He's not speaking lies about others. He does no evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. What proceeded out of the evil heart of the wicked, we saw in Psalm 14, were abominable deeds. Because he lies to himself within his heart. What flows from his heart, what deeds he produces, are evil. But this man, because he speaks truth in his heart, because his inner man is made of truth, what flows from him is truth and righteousness and integrity. His deeds are pure because his heart is pure. His friends can trust in him because his character is blameless. And his character is blameless because of another feature we see in the psalm, which is that he is a man who mirrors the will of God. Another characteristic of this man is that he is a man who mirrors the will of God. If you look at this man, if you look at the things that he loves and the things that he hates, you see a reflection of the things that God loves and the things that God hates. There is virtually no separation between them. Notice what is said in verse 4. This man is one in whose eyes a vile person is despised. This vile person, this is a person whom God rejects. He is the opposite of the one whom God chooses. In Psalm 53, a psalm that of course closely parallels Psalm 14, verse 5 of that psalm says that God scatters the bones of His people's enemies who encamp against them. And then it says, you put them to shame for God has rejected them. The word there for Rejected is the same word we have here for vile person in our psalm. This is the wicked. This is those who remain under God's condemnation forever. He's against them. He despises them. His wrath. We are told elsewhere in Scripture, thinking in particular of John Three here, his wrath abides upon them always. And so is it the case for the righteous man who dwells in the presence of God. He is a reflection of these very same affections. In his own eyes, a vile person, a rejected person, a person whom God has not chosen is despised. But positively, he is also a man who honors those who fear the Lord. These are, of course, believers. These are the people of God. These are those who love 
the Lord, who love His Word and who seek to obey Him and follow Him. The man who can dwell in the presence of God loves these people. He honors them. He cherishes them as His own. And so we might say that he is a man, again, who loves the things that God loves and hates the things that God hates. Their affections. The affections of God and the affections of this blameless man are one. Their will is one. It might even be said that to see this man is to see God. Moreover, a third characteristic of this man is that he upholds the law of God. He is a man who upholds the law of God. At the end of verse 4, down to the first part of verse 5, the psalm here references three different commands that we find in the law, each of them serving as examples of a man who has integrity and who does not take advantage of others. The law, for example, said in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, said there, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And then here, in verse 4 of Psalm 15, this righteous man swears to his own hurt and he does not change. He keeps his word. He keeps his vows. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19, the law there forbids exacting interest from other Israelites. It said in Deuteronomy 23, verse 19, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. The Israelites were permitted to exact interest from foreigners. But if your fellow Israelite, if your fellow covenant member of the covenant community of God had some kind of need and you lent him something to help with this need, whether it was food or money or anything else, you were forbidden from taking interest from your brother and profiting off of his need. And likewise, in Psalm 15, verse 5, the righteous man here does not put out his money at interest. He cares for his brothers. He cares for those whom he's in covenant with. And additionally, the law says in Deuteronomy 16, verse 19, here with reference to judges who are responsible for carrying out righteous judgments within the land, it says, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. And of course here in our psalm, Psalm 15, verse 5, this righteous man does not take a bribe against the innocent. So this is a man we see here is a man who upholds the law of God. And we also see that he's a man who has authority. He's a man who has authority to render judgments. He has the responsibility, just like the judges who are mentioned in Deuteronomy have, to render judgments for people and against others whenever some case arises before him. And of course, in David's day, that authority was not given to judges, but ultimately it goes to the king. And so here, we are not only seeing a, a picture 
of just a, a righteous man who lives his life in the world. This is a man with authority. This is a man who is king. We can conclude that he is of royalty because he has the authority to carry out justice for those who need it. And then finally, a fourth characteristic we find about this man is that he will endure forever. This man is described as one who will endure forever. The end of verse 5, if you look with me there, says, He who does these things shall never be moved. We could translate it another way. We could say he will never be shaken. He is a king and his throne will remain forever. His throne will never be shaken. Because he keeps God's word in accordance with the promises of God made to David, this man will reign forever because God will establish His throne. He may have enemies who come against Him. He may have nations who rage against Him. Peoples may plot against Him. But the man who does these things the man who is a man of truth and who is mirroring the will of God and who upholds the law of God, this man will never perish. He will endure forever. And he will never be shaken. Now, this is our portrait. This is the man that David has painted for us in the psalm. This is the blameless man who is able to come into the presence of God, to dwell on the Lord's holy hill. This is the one who can ascend the mountain and not die. But of course, having established this portrait, the question that arises is where do we go from here? What do we do with this? What are we to make of it? What is this psalm teaching us to see? As we read this psalm, are we commanded or instructed? Is the point here for us to see ourselves? When we read this psalm, are we supposed to be looking within a mirror and seeing our righteousness being portrayed here? Are we seeing the way in which we are walking? I think certainly we could say that Psalm 15 is an ideal. It is the target that we are to aim at. It is righteousness described. And so we want to walk in these paths. I do fear that if we were honest with ourselves and if we searched within, if we had the Word of God searching us and if we tried to see ourselves in light of this particular portrait, we would have to conclude that we are not the man who can walk on the mountain. We can't make it there without perishing on the way. We are those who fall woefully short of this righteous man. Now, I don't think at all that David's intention here is for us to see ourselves in this psalm. Or even for us to see ourselves as we have been made righteous in this psalm. Now, I would submit that David's intention here is for us to see the one who is righteous in Himself. Not one who's been counted righteous, but the one who is righteous within His inner man. David here is painting a picture of the King. He is painting a picture of the King of Kings, of the Messiah, of the Christ. He is painting a picture of the perfect, blameless, holy 
king who can dwell in the presence of God and stand on his own merits. This is ultimately a picture, a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ. He is painting a picture of his greater son who would come from him and be far greater than he. And among several reasons why this is the case, one of the primary reasons that tells us that Christ is the focus of the psalm is the connections that are made between this psalm and Psalm 16. The psalm, I said, needs to be read together. Now, we're not going to get into all the details of Psalm 16, of course, until next week, Lord willing, but I think it's worth pointing out some of the connections between these two psalms because it helps move us right into the direction of understanding the identity of this man. So first of all, I want you to notice with me that in Psalm 15, verse 4, the righteous king, we will call him, despises the vile person or the rejected person. And then if you look at Psalm 16, verse 4, the king here, speaking in the first person, says that he will not even take the names of those who run after other gods upon his lips. He can't even utter their names. His lips are too pure to even say them. That's despising the rejected one. Or in Psalm 15, verse 4, again, the righteous king honors those who fear the Lord. And then if you look with me at verse 3 of Psalm 16, we see there that all of his delight is in the saints in the land. He is a king who rejoices in all of the holy ones of God. He loves those who fear the Lord. His delight is in them. Or in Psalm 15, verse 2, we saw there that the righteous king, contrary to the wicked, is always speaking truth in his heart. And he obeys and he upholds the Word of God. And then if you look with me at Psalm 16, verse 7, similarly, the king receives counsel from the Lord and even his inner man his inner man, his inward parts. The, the ESV says his heart. Literally, it's his kidneys. His, his inward parts are full of truth and they instruct him. His heart speaks truth. There are other connections as well, but let me just point out one more important one. At the end of Psalm 15, verse 5, we read of this righteous king. He who does these things shall never be moved. He will never be shaken. And then in Psalm 16, verse 9, the king says that his flesh dwells secure. But even more importantly, he says in verse 8, using the same language as Psalm 15, I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. That the two psalms complement each other. Psalm 15 describes the righteous king. Psalm 16 is the righteous king speaking. And another necessary question, I think, that follows is, course, who is Psalm 16 ultimately about according to Scripture? David, we can see there at the beginning of the psalm, is no doubt the author of the psalm, but he is not ultimately the subject of the psalm. He is not the one the psalm is written about. He is, in fact, speaking prophetically about another. And Peter makes this identity of this particular person, of this other one besides David, explicit for us in his sermon 
in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2, after Peter has condemned the Jews for crucifying their promised Messiah, Jesus, and after he has proclaimed that God had raised him from the dead, Peter goes on to prove why all of this was necessary. Why he had to die and then be raised by God according to the Scriptures. And he says beginning in verse 25 that David says concerning Him. That is, concerning Jesus. David says concerning Jesus and then he quotes from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me. For He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then here, hear how David explains this psalm. He says further on, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. We can go see it. We know where he's buried. David died. David saw corruption. So he couldn't have been speaking about himself. But he was speaking of another. Then he continues, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We've seen Him. We've seen that He was not abandoned, and that His body never saw corruption because He has been raised. Peter explains for us that the 16th Psalm is a prophetic Psalm about Jesus Christ. David's descendant who would not be abandoned and who would never be shaken. He is the one who is ultimately established forever and ever. And because he's the subject of Psalm 16, because it is Christ, who is speaking in Psalm 16. And Psalm 16 is, of course, linked with Psalm 15. He is, of course, the primary subject of Psalm 15. He is the painting. He's what David is describing for us as he's taken out his painting brush and painted us a picture what we're seeing in the picture is none other than Christ Himself. He is the royal King who perfectly reflects the will of God and who carries out His royal duty as King to execute judgments in the land. He is the one who delights in the saints in the land. He's the one who rejoices and who honors those who fear the Lord. And because He's perfect and pure and blameless in Himself, because He is the rightful King and the heir to the throne of David, He is the one who is able to sojourn in the tent of the Lord and dwell on His holy hill. He's the one who can ascend the highest mountain and not die on His way there. And He dwells in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. 
But even more than this, I think, the Lord Jesus is not one who ascends the mountain of the Lord for His own sake, but He has done so even for our sake. He has gone before us. He has carved out the path for us. He goes into the holy temple of God as our representative, bringing with Him His own sacrificial blood, bringing with Him all of His righteousness, all of His merits, shed as an atonement for us, and He brings them on our behalf as an offering to God. We read earlier from Hebrews chapter 9 how Jesus, who appeared not only as King and not only as a prophet, but as a great high priest, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for us. We who were accounted among the wicked, we who were at one time the Psalm 14 unrighteous atheists denying in our hearts the existence of God and who rejected God and were at enmity with Him, this Jesus, this righteous, blameless King, gave His own life and was subsequently raised from the dead so that through Him we might have the forgiveness of all of our sins, the promise of eternal life, the resurrection from the dead, and ultimately so that we too might be brought near to God with and through Him. The only way we can ever come into the presence of God is if the King who has gone first has paid the penalty for our sins. And that, friends, is what He did on the cross of Calvary. He died for sinners like you and me. He died for those who were stuck in Psalms 10-14, to who were enslaved to our sins, who were enslaved to our unrighteousness and trespasses. He died to free us from that bondage. He died paying the ransom so that we might experience an even greater exodus than the Israelites who came before us did. They were ransomed. They were saved from a wicked Pharaoh who sought to kill them. We were ransomed, if we are in Christ, from the power of sin and death. A power that had authority over Pharaoh himself. And now by faith in Christ, Christ will lead us out of that sin bondage and bring us forever into the presence of God so that we too might dwell on His holy hill and be counted as citizens of Zion, the holy place of God. We see in our psalm today a picture, friends, of our Savior. This is the King who will never be moved and who brings us as His own possession to God. We see His character We see His purpose to carry out the will of God, to uphold His righteous law, to judge the wicked, to honor those who fear the Lord. We see His eternity here. He endures forever. He will never be shaken. We see the place of His reign. He reigns in the presence of God at His right hand. Because He has ascended the holy hill of the Lord, not only for His own sake, but for ours. If we look to Him, and if we trust in Him, if we follow Him, if we come to Him, 
We lay aside all of that enmity we have had with God and plead to Him on the basis of the mercies and grace of Christ that He would forgive us of our sins. He will do it. He will wash us clean and we will dwell within the presence of God forever and ever. It will be said of us the same that is said of Him. He will never be shaken and neither will you. You will endure forever on the basis of His work. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for our righteous King. We are grateful that when we were utterly lost, utterly helpless, enslaved to the bondage of sin, having no hope, without God in the world. When the only thing or the greatest thing that we feared was, was death. And the reality that our days were numbered. You have given to us Your Son to free us from all of these powers and all of these fears. You have given us Christ as our Savior, as our atoning sacrifice, that He washes us clean, that we might stand in Your presence. And You have given to us His very own life, so that in the same way that He lives, we also will live forever. And we will stand with Him in triumph over the grave, singing loud songs of acclamation to You, and singing songs of taunt over the power of death that reigns no more. Lord, we are grateful for Christ and are thankful for Him. We ask that all who are here this day would know Him and know Him forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will stand with me.